1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I told A.J. we have to do that. We have to cover this bird. This is the... Well, one of the longest migratory raptors on Earth. What can they teach us?
1: What's fascinating is when they hit the Indian Ocean, uh, I mean, they're flying for two to three days straight. No stops. No food.
0: No water. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: I'm bringing it today, Angie. I am <laughs> so literally excited about this episode and this bird. I know. It was a really fun week
1: uh, studying the Amur Falcon. I,
0: it The story, the migration, everything surrounding this bird. It's just, I, the only thing I could say to the listeners is doing this podcast for the last three three and a half years now, right? I guess the time has flown each week. I know you enjoy learning with us. We enjoy learning, you know, researching, looking up the articles, the scientific research on these animals present the data to you. It's just, you run across these stories sometimes and it just, I get giddy. I was so giddy last night, today, waking up, getting ready to record this episode because the story of the Amur falcon their conservation, their migration. It's, it's I just was like, wow. Uh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, it really, really is. And you and I are so funny all week long going back and sending each other like, well, read this one or what about this? Or yeah, it's just, it's been a really, really interesting week. And I hopefully you're going to fall in love with Amuro Falcon like we did. And Chris did an amazing interview that you'll have to check out. It's going to drop in a couple of days and I'll let him touch on that a little bit more, but it definitely complements this, uh, this pod perfectly.
0: Well, yeah, okay. So it's it's another Whitley Award winner, and listen to Nucleo Farm again. Each each of these, and, and we still have a few to to drop. We have Paula coming up next week, and a couple of others. Each one of these winners, grassroots conservation story, so
1: inspirational.
0: Oh, just wow! I mean, gives me goosebumps. You know, chills up my spine. Giddy with happiness that people like this are out there. Yeah, and you want to listen to Nucleo Farm in Nagaland in India. I'm going to talk a lot about that area of the world today because he brought up, you know, the Amur falcon. And again, I didn't know a lot about it. I, you know, we still have to do the peregrine falcon and a few other Arctic turn.
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah,
0: yeah. So there's other birds out there that were on our radar, but after listening to his story. I told Angie we have to do that. We have to cover this bird. This is the well one of the longest migratory raptors on Earth. It is the longest. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple for of a raptor
1: that, for a bird of prey for a raptor, mm-hmm. right?
0: They go from basically think of North China, Mongolia, all the way to South Africa, and we're going to talk about that today. Yes,
1: fourteen countries, two continents, one ocean. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's incredible. It
0: really- Nature is so radical. It's so amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun today. And, and of course, full disclosure, uh, Chris and I are not ornithologists or bird experts, but I will tell you, we have loved learning about birds. They're fascinating. And hopefully we can bring some of that excitement to you about their physiology and behavior because this Amuro falcon is just incredible.
0: I, I am, I am turning into a big bird fan. Thanks to to Jesse here in New Zealand. And awesome. I, yeah. I'm even looking at, I, I'm, I'm going to talk to Jesse about joining a local bird watching group because, you know, we do have the New Zealand Falcon down here when I get to evolution, talk about that. And I know Jesse always tries to see one when we go out, you know, he's like, okay, on my list, I haven't seen a New Zealand Falcon yet. And so, you know, he, he every year he, he goes out and looks at all the birds, but the story of Nukulu Farm, Naga Land, why it's important for the Amur Amir Falcon. Well,
1: and for all the birders out there in Naga Land, and I know you're going to touch on it, but just, I mean, the quick cliff notes is that is the, it's the biggest gathering of birds of prey on the planet. So if Thousands, you, thousands. Hundreds of thousands. So if you this... want to see an Amur Falcon, that's where you need to go. Uh, And we'll talk about that today as well.
0: It's definitely now on my top 10 list of places on the planet I want to go visit in October to see this migration because it's a fascinating story. So check out that interview. Just, it gives, again, gives you a lot of hope. I think today, the take home message in this podcast is there is a lot of hope out there. And then
1: one person or one or two or a few people can make a huge difference. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You Mm -hmm. out there listening can make a huge, huge difference if you want to, if you put your mind to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, Real quick, thank you, Maria, for joining us on Patreon this week. Again, you are supporting us, supporting this work we do. I mean, just this morning, Angie conducted an interview for next month. So that will be coming your way. We're working hard, you know, many hours a week doing this podcast. So thank you for your support. It's helping us get the message out. So thank you so much. Again, a cup of coffee a month, a Starbucks a month supports Angie and I and our conservation message and telling these stories of a Nikulu farm or the Amur Falcon. So thank you so much. It means the world to us.
1: Well that, and we also donate uh 25% to an organization of the month that our Patreon listeners get to select. So, uh, even though <laughs> we don't really make any money, we give it right back to the, uh, To the conservation heroes that we get to talk to each month. So, and then just my little side note is in July, we will be having another team for the plastic free eco challenge that we've done the last couple years. Uh, All creatures podcast will be hosting the team. I'll be team captain, right along with Chris, and uh, usually Allison. She she steps up to the plate and helps us. Our dear friend Allison, uh, who also did an interview with us a long, long time ago about relocating. In the 20s. Mm-hmm. It's about, in the twenty episode. It's 20 such something. a good one, though. It's I mean, talk about yeah. a dream job, um, helping re- relocate rhinos in uh, Africa. But at any rate, I'll we'll start uh, putting up links to help join our team on our social media sites and of course on our webpage. And um, and I'll be giving links next in, in early July so you can join us and help us score points. And I have some really amazing prizes for listeners that participate and that end up being some of our top point earners. And it says Plastic Free Eco Challenge, but keep in mind, it's not like you don't use plastic. It's just the whole month is trying to get ideas and share ideas and do challenges to try to reduce our plastic use and how to re and how to recycle and maybe reorganize how you do things in order to consume less plastic. So it's really, really fun. And I hope that you will join us.
0: Yeah. Look for that. That starts in a couple of weeks. So, you know, definitely be sure to check out, you know, our Facebook group, all creatures podcast and also you know instagram we'll be putting some some info out so so check us out there so describing the amur falcon it's beautiful bird it's just gorgeous yeah and for those of you from
1: north america the first Thing that came to mind for me was uh, an American kestrel. In my previous life as a zookeeper, I got to work with birds of prey, and uh, an American kestrel by the name of Artemis and Diana. I can't forget her. Uh, they were some of the birds that I, I learned to handle first for education programs, and yeah, they are just they're smaller birds of prey, um, beautiful, and these Amur falcons are very similar in size. So they're, they're a tiny Falcon. They're somewhat dainty, if you will. And so to start with the male amur Falcon, his overall color is this dark gray, almost sooty color, uh, where with his underside being a lighter gray color and underneath the wings uh, is white. And then there's just an orange or some call a rufous splash, um, on his lower underbelly parts, and he's just very, very clean lines. Just very, uh, some describe it as very elegant-looking uh, small bird of prey. Uh, and the females completely different. Females and ju- juveniles, I should say. Uh, there's going to be a lot of barring, and so on. On the overall body is brown, grayish in color with almost a barred-like pattern, uh, especially. On her belly. Uh, it's going to be white and brown bars. And then on the underside of her wings is going to be barred. And then it's barred on the tail as well, this kind of brown, gray, uh, white alternating pattern. But all ages and uh, sexes are going to have these bright orange feet, legs and feet that stand out. Uh, and so that will help you identify them. But Unless you go to Nagaland, uh, where Chris and I have put on our bucket list to see yes. tens of thousands of these guys get together Absolutely. when they're migrating, the feathering pattern of these guys is going to be similar to other species. Um, in fact, Chris will talk about it, I'm sure, when we get to evolution, but uh, they are once thought to be closely related to the red footed falcon or the sooty falcon or a gray kestrel. Um, so you have to really be a bird nerd to really, I, to identify one um, unless you are going to some of their known breeding, roosting or migratory places.
0: Yeah. And I mean, just the, the sizes, it, it's just, Oh, they're just beautiful birds. And
1: it's like, they're good looking. I mean, they're good looking birds that, I mean, I think yeah, I mean, sure. the male is to me, just very handsome with the, his very, yeah. he's got very clean lines and coloration patterns.
0: No, oh, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And they only stand about a foot tall or 35 centimeters, a wingspan of, you know, 28 inches or two feet or 70 centimeters, and they weigh a whopping quarter of a pound or 120 grams. Like,
1: yeah, they're, I mean, when you think of, I don't know, when you think of a falcon, you think bigger, bird of prey, but right. no, yeah. they're very, they're very, they're small on the smaller side.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're just amazing. And uh, okay. So, again, a lot of, what we're going to talk about today, really dork out on some migration. Got some really interesting research on migration, migratory birds, and specifically the mer falcon. So their range is massive. Crazy massive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they they breed in East Asia, Russia, Mongolia, North China, North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. And then migrate down through China, India, They say sometimes they they end up in Thailand, that parts of Southeast Asia, but then they fly over the Indian Ocean into Africa, East Africa, then all the way down to South Africa. It's insane. It's insane.
1: Yeah. When I put a picture up on my show notes of their distribution, it's pretty much like the globe, (laughs) the whole part of the world. It's incredible. I mean, basically their range is over 8,000 kilometers.
0: It, it's fa- More it's or less. fascinating. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I know, you know, bald eagles do migrate, you know, down in Florida. We'd always see them come down, you know, during the winter to nest and everything. So I knew they migrated to an extent, but not this, not this is insane. This is a huge, huge migratory route.
1: Oh, yeah, Chris. I just kept reading articles about what we know or what scientists are learning about their mig- migratory patterns. And uh, one of the more recent ones, they put transmitters on them so they could track them. And just – I just the paths are incredible. <laughs> it's just yes. amazing.
0: New Blue talks a little bit about that, like the, the work that they've done is mm-hmm. now that they, they are tracking them in these long migration routes. And, you know, birds of prey – again are very critical to an ecosystem so these guys play a key role they're 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 not going after what you think of other birds of prey they're more insectivores right but they still are are critical
1: oh yeah i was reading articles about uh the importance of the Muir falcon uh to consume insects and uh, in South Africa, where they winter, uh, one article even discussed them being a keystone species because of all the insects that they consume. And there, if they were to if they were to be wiped out and weren't there, that it could really like hinder the crops and people's lives with all the insects that they are consuming each year.
0: Well, it goes back to bats. Remember, I remember mm-hmm. our very first one of our first. It was probably first bat episode where you said bats had like a $4 billion economic impact on a, farmers in North America, right? Or just just in the United States, I think it was.
1: hmm mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So very similar. Very similar.
1: And now the hope is that since we're learning more about the Muir Falcon and their migratory routes, that some of this ecotourism – for bird enthusiasts and bird lovers out there to come see these pit stops during their migration in nagaland could be a huge benefit to ecotourism uh if that gets up and coming which i'm sure you'll talk about in the interview
0: definitely he says come visit (laughs) <laughs> come visit Nagaland.
1: There, yeah, uh, cliff notes. There it is. Yeah, yeah definitely mm-hmm. come
0: visit once we get out of this pandemic and and things subside. And and we do talk a little bit about how COVID has has not really affected them too much there, so it's good. It, it's really okay. a a beautiful area of Asia, and, a, and I'm going to talk about Nagaland here and the story of the Amur falcon. It basically started at about 2012, where these falcons were being illegally harvested by the tens of thousands every year and that caught the eye of environmentalists conservationists because nagaland is a critical pit stop during this migration that these birds go on they spend a little bit over a month in nagaland where you know they came down from china in those areas they congregate here and then it coincides with insect populations so in october insect populations are booming in nagaland that's where the Amira falcons go and they're really fattening themselves up so they can fly across the indian ocean and make it into africa so it's a very unique again it's such a unique story so in nagaland they were being illegally harvested by the locals and sold for food and the feathers and and all of this because the people there with economic development in Naga land were losing, they were losing land to grow their crops, things like that. So when this was brought to light and they realized how critical Naga land was for these birds, the locals there... One like Fam rose up and Nkulufam is a church worker. He is not a scientist. He's not a, he is an environmentalist. He you know, obviously you hear it in, in his heart and what he's doing, but he doesn't have any formal training in biology. He, it, again, this is why these stories are so fascinating to tell that we've been telling with these Whitley award winners. He stood up and a few others stood up and, and said, Hey, we need to preserve our land, our natural resources, and this bird, and so he started to develop what he, he calls peace corridors, things like that, to protect their habitat. Now, really quick, where's Nagaland? It's in India. It's a state within India, and you know, for those that are ge- ge- geographically challenged, you know, so India, you have the main like piece of India because India's got a very interesting history. So you have what everybody sees. I don't even know, how, how would you describe that? It looks like a shark tooth, right? That's the mainland of India. Well, Nagaland and a few other states are on the eastern side. So in between- The northeastern. Right, Bangladesh is like in between the shark tooth and then this little outcrop of states of India. And then to the east of Nagaland, it borders with Myanmar or what was Burma. Okay, uh, Bhutan is a little bit further north, and then Nepal is like northwest with the Himalayas from there. So you know, it's a subtropical mixed forest, all Mountains. sorts yeah, all sorts of uh, trees, you have you have tigers, leopards, elephants, pangolins, sloth bears, all sorts of deer, you know, civets pythons all sorts of animals live there it's very rich it's very rich in biodiversity so when they recognized this in 2012 in 2013 you know new, new farm stood up and started to 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 talk to the locals educate the locals and stop this illegal harvesting because these birds need it so he goes more into the the details of his project what he's doing so again listen to that interview, but. Again, it's just what I got out of that. It, what I got out of this bird, Angie, is there are like little pockets on Earth. Like I, I go and, and I know we don't want to cover an insect, but I go back to monarch butterflies in Mexico. Right? They there's that one area. In, in well, Sonora. we would lo-
1: I we would love insects. I just don't know. No. if it's our expertise. No. No. It would be really would, hard. No
0: you know you, the monarch butterfly with the sonoran desert or the sonoran mountains where where they winter and there's that one area in the world where the, it's just they're all congregated mm-hmm. and it's a critical habitat it's a critical area for 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 that species of insect well that's nagaland to the Amur falcon it is a critical critical area so you know it, it's a beautiful part of the world i definitely before I die and leave this planet, I, I really hope I can get there.
1: Oh yeah. I was fascinated by watching all the video uh, clips preparing for this podcast. And then also some of the articles with just the photos were just breathtaking, of course, of all the Muir Falcons congregating, but just the land, the people, the culture uh, is, just, is just fascinating. And well, and Chris, one of the articles that I was reading was discussing a similar story uh, about how a woman by the name of Bano Haralu—I think I'm saying that right—who uh, was a conservationist from that region, but then had gone off to, I think, New Delhi or uh, other regions of India to uh, for schooling and things like this. And she had heard a little bit about um, the Mere Falcon slaughter and was like, "Oh, you know, that can't be so," and then yes, in 2012, came there, talked with the villagers, and just was like, this has to stop. And so so she worked very hard to help get the government and policymakers involved, and of course, work with locals as far as becoming uh, ambassadors and uh, and helping and to continue the education of school children and just get everybody in the region really excited about this, like you mentioned, this only place in the world where this happens, where they congregate in such large numbers. And as more tensions being turned towards the mirror Falcon and this migration stopover in Nagaland, the Doyang dam is a real hot spot for them. Uh, but they're also finding that there's a few other pockets, a few other locations where large amounts of them congregate, but it's all still in a pretty small specialized area. Uh, so, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's a fascinating story, and the work by Bano and others, like you mentioned, just a few people have been making a world of difference.
0: And uh, it, I'm telling you, it, it just, it gives me a lot of hope. And you know, again, like in this podcast, we we have to give data and talk about some of the bad stuff that's going on out there with with a lot of species around the planet, no matter where you are, it's just when you hear these grassroots stories and you realize, you know, people are changing, people are making a difference and you listeners are helping making a difference. So, you know, it gives us a lot of hope and that's why, you know, we, we don't ever give it up and we keep fighting and fighting and fighting, telling these stories and, and doing the work. So yeah, Angie, they're, it just I'm all smiles. I'm like I've been all smiles, like in this podcast, getting ready for this. It's just exciting.
1: Yeah, Chris. Well, just even reading articles about how locals were interviewed, and they said, yeah, like it was it was really hard. Like first the dam came in, it brought us electricity, which was good, but then it flooded a lot of our fields. So a lot of agriculture was decreased in that region, uh, and so the locals they were able to turn to fishing a little bit. But in the same instance, that's why. Poaching these birds was bringing them, you know, bringing it's like bringing them a lot of money and and food. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: but they understood. There, they listened, and they all worked together, and 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 they understood that they needed to try something else, and and are and are doing that, and are mm-hmm, committed, mm-hmm. and are once again hoping that people will come there and ecotourism will uh will increase some of their revenues so but yeah it's just a great i mean the community coming together it's just yeah i really feel good story no
0: i mean i i definitely want to get there i definitely want to somehow find my way to nagaland now and and see these birds like if you're a birder i think that's a place on the earth that you need to go you absolutely need to go i'm gonna talk to jesse about it and say, dude, you got to go to Nagaland. I'm, I'm, you know, you go <laughs> yeah. first and tell me where to stay and where not to stay. And how <laughs> you got there and then I'll follow you later. But, um, yeah, just a, a fun. Well, bird. the
1: government's taking notice, like conservation, um, some of the conservation trust groups in India, they're trying to help, uh, rebuild the road there to make it easier for visitors to reach that pretty remote area of Northeastern India. So, uh, Hopefully, uh, it'll it'll become much less of a trek for people that do right. want to go there.
0: Right, right.
1: While still preserving the land,
0: exactly. He- yeah, not <laughs> totally urbanizing it, but but keeping the uh, keeping the area pristine. Now, evolution was fascinating too, a little bit because I'll t- I'll get there in a second. But you know, with the Amur falcon, obviously it's a bird. Over ten thousand species of bird on the planet. They're the order falconiforms, which has an interesting history because, again, with genetics in the last 20 years, have really changed a lot of what we understand with natural history. So, this order used to include hawks, vultures, you know, condors, osprey, other birds, but because of genome sequencing, they realize they're not that closely related. So they've reclassified those other ones. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Since 2008. So falcinoforms, that is- Wow, that
1: yeah. was defi- definitely after my bird biology class. So I learned things the wrong way.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, but, but genetics. Well, you know, in the last yeah. century, no? things were different. You know, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs>
0: Before. <sighs> <laughs> no, you're not that old. Um, anyways, so- What's interesting now with this new classification, though, you, I don't think you would you would guess who falcons are more closely related to. I don't think you could you could even see. I, I just don't think you would you you would guess penguins. Right. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> that's way the heck out there. <laughs>
1: um, well, let's see, falcons. Mm. Uh, is it another bird of
0: prey well no you would think no not hawks not eagles i owls no owls are more closely related to hawks or vultures but no falcons are more closely related to parrots and songbirds
1: interesting isn't that, isn't that crazy i would not have guessed that no Me either
0: no way like there you go there there's a there's a bird fact of the day so falcons are as a family falconiforms. Are more closely related to your parrots and songbirds. So the songbirds forms. Oh gosh, Angie, you're gonna have to help me with parrots. forms. I love you, and I love you Try that. It.
1: <laughs> it's probably I, I. don't have it in front of me. Cinnicines. Uh, it's Cytocine. Cytocine. Yeah, Parodic. that's what it is. I knew.
0: Cytocine. I knew. I had it. I knew. I had it in that brain. Citizens. <laughs> all right, that'll probably be our next bird that we do. Uh, you know. Oh, all right. So the the family Falconidae, falcons and Caracaras, which are South American. So there's about 60 species within that family. And just, Falcons are cool. Like I I didn't even remember, like even doing this, my high school mascot, good old Torrey Pines in San Diego. We were the Falcons, you know, Mm -hmm. they're distributed. They call it, you know, again, a cosmopolitan distribution all around the world. I (laughs) love that.
1: I love that
0: word. Yeah. It is, and you know, the only places that you don't find them is the Arctic, Antarctica. It's just too cold for them. And here's an interesting fact about falcons, not just the amur. The peregrine falcon has one of the widest ranges, from Greenland to Fiji. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Like, wow! It's like, just yeah! Like, just huge, 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 huge. So fun birds to study. The genus is Falco. And like I said, New Zealand falcon, there's tons of them. The kestrels are in there. The red-footed falcon, the merlin bat falcon. I mean, Australian hobby or little falcon. They're, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There's, there's a whole list of them. Uh, beautiful, beautiful birds. So about 40 species within that genus falco. And then the amurris is falco amurensis is their scientific name. Now, really quick on birds, you know, we talked about this, you know, came out through dinosaurs 160 million years ago. The pelicaniforms, are the first to emerge 66 million years ago. That's where modern birds emerged. As far as raptors, anywhere from 35 million to 50 million years ago is where they really start to emerge out. A new world vulture, they think in the Americas was one of the first about 50 million years ago. So, still a lot of science to be done on when birds emerged. now what's interesting about raptors is when you look at their emergence it really isn't until about 10 to 20 million years ago where you see this explosion of the diversity in species so for those first 20 million years there was not a lot of raptor species around which is interesting it was really the last 10 million, you know, I have this, this graph from the scientific article I got shows it's almost vertical where the diversity in species. So really in the last 10 million years is where Raptors really started finding all these niche niches, you know, mm-hmm. as you know, the, the earth went through the warming periods and then that cooling period is when they think that's really when they, they took off. Yeah. Yeah. There Pardon you go. The <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of, and again, a lot of convergent evolution going on, mm-hmm. you know, why the Amur falcons, you know, evolving in Asia, in South America, or, you know, or or North America, you have other falcon-like species, you know, developing similar traits. Now, falcons as as a whole, really the last 5 million years is when... They started to emerge and then the last 2 million years is when, you know, the modern falcons really started uh, to come about. Now, what I really focused on this week was migration. And I know we talked about it with the leatherback sea turtles a couple of weeks ago and you really went in that awesome discussion about like, how do they know to come back to the same beach? So we're going to, we're going to dork out on migration today a little bit more.
1: Yes, because I still have that same question about the Amir falcon.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: When I was looking over these uh, these routes that have been tracked in the past couple of years by a scientist, it's just incredible they, because what the research is showing is that when they migrate from South Africa over to northeastern China, they take a more northerly route. And on their way home, when they stop in Nagaland to feed on the termites, uh, they take a more southerly route. Uh, it's just, it's incredible.
0: It I mean, is. It is. Okay. Okay. So now the evolution, here we go. the evolution of migration. Why? Why did birds evolve to migrate?
1: Well, Chris, that's what I was really trying to rack my brain on with these Amur falcons. I'm like, you're in South Africa, it's warm, there's lots to eat. You know why do you want to go to these breeding grounds in northeastern China? It's so far away. <laughs> well, and, and yeah. then you get there and it's beautiful there. And why do you want to go back? I mean, it's and they go, they go, it's twice a year they're doing this,
0: right? Right. And I think 14
1: I, to 15,000 kilometers back I, and forth total.
0: I think a lot of it has to do with diet, like, there might not be as many insects in South Africa, so they're forced to To migrate. Here, here's the th- the two competing theories on why birds migrate. Okay, because I, I did go down this rabbit hole because I th- I just find it so amazing and it's difficult because as a behaviorist, you know that's that's one of your fortés. They don't behavior traits don't fossilize, right? You can't. Sure how how do we know how dinosaurs acted or you know like the thing that fascinates me with saber tooth cats? Why the heck did they? evolve these dagger like teeth it's it's got to make it hard for them to chew and and do whatever but it it gave them some competitive advantage Mm -hmm. right like you know but we don't know because behavioral traits don't fossilize we don't know same thing with with like birds and migration so the main theory that i think has the most support is called the tropical origin hypothesis So that this tropic zone, species there, it was constant. Environment's constant. Food resources were pretty constant. As populations grew, they started to branch out and colonize like really more northern habitats, you know, and more southern for the southern Sure, like
1: they're looking for food, more food. Like, okay, it's kind of getting too crowded here. We need to go this much further to look for right. food.
0: Yeah, as they as they branched out. Now, during the summer months, great tons of food, but during the winter months, food availability decreased, so these birds went further south to the southern latitudes where there was more food. And then it warmed up and then so they would they would drift north again. So it was it was very step by step small increments. It wasn't like all of a sudden the Amur falcon said, oh, we're going to South Africa. Let's go. And flew all the way down there. It it was like very slow. It was a slow development, you know, short migrations. And then migration routes became longer and longer and longer. So, but who
1: was the first to fly over the Indian Ocean?
0: That's, (laughs) That's... I know, I know, I know. Oh, Then we'll get into how they migrate, like, you know, when we get to physiology. Now the other theory that doesn't, I did from the paper reading it, it didn't seem to have as much support, but is that climate kind of the, the the earth was cooling. So it kind of forced these birds to look for new areas to live. And then that forced them back and forth where they started to, uh, to evolve their migration routes. So, you know, really, I think the general consensus is, is this started as like a very small step by step until you developed or evolved these long migratory routes. It wasn't just one day a bird said, hey, we're flying all the way down to South Africa. It was right. maybe they went to Naga land, you know, and then back to China and then they went to Southern India and then back to China, you know, over hundreds of thousands a year, not hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of years or, you know, say it took a thousand years, then a flock or small group said, oh, let's try this way. And they made it across the Indian Ocean and then came back and said, oh my God, look at this. And then did it again and again and again. So again, science, it it would be fun. I was going to say, it doesn't,
1: It's it almost makes it even crazier when you like try to explain it.
0: I mean, it it does. Like, why did they do it? And we'll get to the how in a minute. Now, talking about birds and longevity, these birds can live up to 14 years in the wild, 18 years under human care. So I didn't think that was very long for a bird because we know albatross lives into their 60s. And I did look up the oldest living bird was a cockatoo that lived to be about 83. Wow. So the citizens, I'll say it right now, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) they live pretty long, right? Good job. Yeah, of
1: course. Well, that's why... I always pause and hesitate when people say they want them for pets. I said, well, you're going to have them as, as a grandparent. <laughs> yes. So yeah, that's commitment.
0: Yeah. Are your grandkids ready to inherit a parrot? <laughs> 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 Cause that's what's going to happen. Uh. Now, before we jump back into migration, because again, I think, I think, and then you also have a lot of behavior that you want to cover in reproduction, So when they do migrate, again, like Angie said earlier in the podcast, they are now flying with transmitters, and they're able to track them. And so in one of these trackers, over a period of 60 hours, so over Mm -hmm. three days, one Falcon covered close to 1,800 kilometers was going at 30 kilometers an hour or 19 miles per hour. Wow. Another one had a nonstop flight because I know this was one of your questions covered a distance of 5,600 kilometers in five days and 10 hours, average speed of 40 kilometers per hour or 25 miles per hour. So just humming along and they're not, they're not, they don't soar. Like we talked condors and albatross, they have to flap the entire way. Insane that this little bird can do what it does.
1: Well, some of the research is showing, too, that as they migrate over the land, whether they're heading uh, back to China from South Africa, uh, they'll go up the coast and they'll be on the land for a while. And that, it takes a while, it takes a couple of months from what studies are showing. What's fascinating is when they hit the Indian Ocean, uh, I mean, they're flying for two to three days straight, no stops, no food, no water. It's just, it's just
0: incredible. <laughs> how, how, how did these species do this stuff? How do they do it? So that that's okay. So that was my question: migration. How? As a scientist, it's like okay, how? How I've got, we've got to know because we're such nerds. We were like, we, we've got to know that we got to dig down to the answer. That's what science is about. We want to answer these questions. So what we do know about migration. Over 5,000 species migrate every year, round trip. So we have a lot of work to do. I know we've got a lot of species we want to cover. And again, we talked about the evolution of it, but their main goal is to find the richest, most abundant food resources to help nurture their young. You know, that's, that's what they're doing. That's why they're migrating. Now, initially, when I thought of migration, what I knew of it, is they use the Earth's magnetic field, right? Sure. That's what we thought. Now what we're learning is it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, the, the, now there's four main theories of how birds migrate. That's that magnetic sensing that they have sensory chemicals in their brains and their eyes and their bills that can sense the Earth's magnetic field. And they orient and go in the right direction for their long journey. It's like they call it the internal compass, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another theory is geographic mapping. So they learn, you know, from the, the other birds where to go. So they know certain mountain ridges, lakes, rivers, coastlines. They, they can do it by geography. That's one theory star orientation which i think you talked a little bit with with sea turtles right that Mm -hmm. that birds that migrate at night can use the stars the (laughs) constellations like we did when we sailed the earth it's incredible
1: like (laughs) that's just fascinating
0: a, a bird
1: a bird Oh, I—I I mean, I get happy when I'm like, "Ooh, there's a Little Dipper and the Big Dipper, and ooh, I, I can do Orion now." John taught me right. that because of his belt. Right. Uh, that's about. I know uh, you're a little bit more of a star nerd, yeah. Uh, and I would love to be. It's just, it just is. It's a whole. It's so much out. Of, it's so much out of my comfort zone. It's a whole other thing to learn. And these animals are born with it. Yeah. I'm thinking. Well, we yeah. don't know
0: for sure, but yeah. Yeah. It's great. Oh, it's nuts! And then the fourth one is learned routes. So they said, like sandhill cranes and snow geese, learn it from their parents. Sure, and then they can go back and and do the same route. So those are well, the, the, the yeah. Four I don't
1: think that can be the case with a falcon because no. I think once they fledge, they're on their own.
0: Right, right. Yeah, we'll get to get to some of that here in a second. Now we know what kicks this off is, or what we 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 assume or what they've studied in some birds is as light levels change, angle of the sun changes, daylight, day, night cycle changes, that triggers them hormone levels, which we know in reproduction and and other species triggers them that they better get going. Right. Mm -hmm. Now in autumn in the Northern hemisphere, the, Amir Falcon leaves the Amur River region in northeastern Asia. So that's where they get their name. And again, their route, they go south, they go around the Himalayas. They don't, they they cannot fly over the Himalayas, too much for them. They stop in Nagaland. And then when they leave Nagaland, they head south again and cross, you know, the, the Bay of Bengal or go over India. So they get on the west coast of India. And then they go on that journey across the Indian Ocean. So, three to four days is, is what I what I was reading. Now, when they reach Africa, it's not over which, yet.
1: Which should be noted that that's between 2,300 or 3,100 kilometers.
0: Is about <laughs> nonstop,
1: nonstop non Between, between uh, 44 and 80 hours. So
0: nuts. It's just not. Averaging
1: nuts. speed of uh, 37 to uh, 56 kilometers per hour. Yeah. Yeah. And then. I mean, I would be, I guess I'd be going fast too. Like, get me. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're know, like, but yeah, yeah. like, we got to do this. We got to go.
0: Well, I think it's a, a good it's not point. Not time here. to
1: lollygag. Because you did be message me coming.
0: and you're like, okay, how do they eat and how do they sleep? So before. They fly. That's why Naga land's so critical. It, it, you have this abundance of insects. They fatten up, which again, they're a quarter of a pound. They're 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 tiny, but they build yeah. up energy reserves.
1: Well, yeah, Chris. I was reading that they need to double their weight with the few weeks that they stop over in Naga land before they can continue their journey. So, I mean, like you mentioned, they don't weigh a lot, uh, but still doubling their weight is that's pretty significant.
0: Yeah, they need those those reserves, and then and then you asked an interesting question, so I had to go down this rabbit hole a little bit. How do they sleep? You know, do they just stay awake for four days? while they do this and then rest? Well, the the simple answer is we don't know because you know we, we need to do more research in in these birds and other birds. What the theory is is similar to like dolphins and, and I think even whales, you talked about this in an episode where the left and right side of the brain are autonomous. And so they may sleep on the way, half the brain sleeping while one half's going, then the other half, which, uh, which is crazy for us as humans to primate to even consider it. Cause when we sleep, we're out. But-
1: well, I mean, yeah. So you're like, they're like sleeping, and flying over the ocean, so exercising like crazy, and also navigating um, a vast ocean with no landmarks. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so doing all that. So sleeping, navigating, and exercising. I, I can barely do one of those things <laughs> at, at, once. The, at once, let yeah. alone putting any of them together. Right, right, right. So-
0: that's why this bird's so cool. Birds are cool. So cool. Like, birds are very cool. They are. We every bird we do, we always get so cute. And and for the for
1: the mere falcon because uh there's definitely parental investment, but what, pretty much once the offsprings uh fledge, I mean, they're on their own. So now that's like so the first time they, they do this amazing uh eight thousand kilometer journey, it's all inherent like they all they just know how to do it mm-hmm. i mean i can't even like I'm, I'm just right now working with my seven-year-old my four-year-old on how to like use a map
0: right <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i know because we're used to using navigation now these days i mean or,
1: or even think think about this so the back and forth so a full year migration back and forth is about four thousand to fifteen thousand kilometers right there and back I mean, most people don't drive their cars that much in a year.
0: No, no. Yeah. Right now. And, I'm that's, and yeah. we're
1: like sitting in it, you know, yeah. this is an animal flapping their wings and oh, it's just, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's really, and, and, and it's cool too, that researchers are starting to try to learn more about their different routes uh, and, and where they stop off and, and what they need to eat and what they're
0: doing in order to.
1: Track them, I guess, as they move through Africa and then, of course, through uh, Central Asia.
0: Now, the Somali Jet Stream helps them a little bit on the way.
1: Okay. Yeah, they were called the monsoon
0: winds. Right, right. It helps helps them a little bit push them. Now, when they go back in late spring, they have to return to Asia. The winds over the Indian Ocean have changed. That monsoon winds or what you said, the Somali jet makes it very hard for them to fly over the ocean. So they don't. They go up Africa and then cross the Arabian Sea into the Arabian Peninsula to get to India in April. They can't cross the Himalayas. So they fly east again and then they, they go around it north back into north china mongolia russia where they nest well chris i know that
1: researchers uh for the longest time thought that when they were heading back to the breeding grounds in china from africa that they were skirting the ocean uh but there's new research from tracking data in 2017 that showed that they did take a much more northerly route over the Indian Ocean uh, than when they're coming down in uh, fall. But in the springtime, they still do trek across most of the Indian Ocean. Uh, once again, much a much more northerly route. But, and this was a combination of you know, eight, 10 birds that they track. So we know there's hundreds of thousands of them that do this. So they're collecting more data each year and adding to it. But they're, yeah, they're thinking that uh, they might be more in the ocean um, on that northerly route than they had Mm -hmm. originally thought.
0: Yeah. That's why this data, it's just, it's it's amazing to see. Well,
1: and for me, that begs the question, okay, well, I know when they're, when they're heading in the autumn, when they're heading from China to South Africa and they stop in Nagaland to feed on the termites that are emerging and, and they fatten up double their size, when they in the spring, when they're heading back to their breeding grounds um, from South Africa to uh, China, where are they fattening up there? I know I mean the researchers said that there was a slow route. like it takes them like a month or two to go up the, um, up the easterly side of Africa to the african horn then come over but there's no at this point there's no mass gathering of fattening up like there is in the fall
0: i want to know why i mean i know i want to get to south africa and get to kruger and all these beautiful places but why aren't they in the serengeti plains or like those parts of africa why they go all the way to south africa it's i know it's just it's just maybe too hot i don't know maybe it's too hot i don't know you said africa hot right it's hot it's, it's really, hot yeah. yeah uh it's i don't know it's another question all right so you've got to get to some more behavior besides migration again we said they're insectivores that's the majority of their diet they will eat other things like other birds lizards rodents mm-hmm. yeah but you know Termites are big for them. Locusts, dragonflies, grasshoppers—so those are all the things that they like to eat. But what's the other like behaviors that they do? The migration is the big one, obviously, with the species. But
1: well, Chris, in general, amir falcons are nocturnal, and like you said, they feed on insects and things like that. But they're gonna usually hunt them uh, in the evening from a perch. And then the insects, I watched an amazing video, they they catch in flight. So uh, they're really good little hunters, and they can just zip uh, over an insect and just gobble it up. It's just really fun to watch them, watch them fly. Uh, and different than a lot of other raptors, Amir falcons are really social for most of the year. Uh, and they will have these really large flocks where they congregate both, where they winter in South Africa and then of course, where they breed um, and in China and then in their migratory routes, like in Nagaland where they're just not afraid to be thousands of them at once. And what they'll do is they'll make these communal roosts in trees. And so they are all near each other and they have no problem with that. And they, you know, have their own their own either pecking order figured out or they just don't mess with each other. They know that there's tons of insects to eat. So we're just going to all kind of be nice to each other and gobble them up, right? Well, Kristen, a kind of a fun fact I learned about the Miro falcon when I was studying this week is that they participate in what is known as nest kleptoparasitism. parasitism. that was a new word
0: for (laughs) me. That is new Uh, for both of us. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And so I know know the word kleptomaniac means somebody who can't control themselves from stealing. And parasitism usually means that you're uh, invading something else or harming something else. So the mirror falcon is known to practice this nest parasitism where they basically – Occupy the nest of other birds, uh, and so crows and ravens, and then a more recent study showed magpies, is where they like to just you know get out of here. This is mine, and then they 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 take it over. And when a mirror falcons are not practicing nest kleptoparasitism, uh, they will often nest in tree holes. So yeah, I thought that that was just an interesting behavior. I mm-hmm, never had mm-hmm. I, I I knew of the behavior. I just had never. I didn't know that with um uh these tiny falcons and I right. definitely uh was unaware of that fancy term so that's we were learning right Yeah. So yep, yep. it every week yep. but general to other falcons the mer falcon is monogamous so now when they're in their breeding grounds um in uh, northeastern china along the Mir river as you mentioned uh they will pick a mate and work with that mate and after breeding the female and the male will brood the eggs and the female, it can be anywhere up to four. So one to four eggs and both the male and the female muir falcon will take turns sitting on them and incubating them while the other one goes out and feeds. And the incubation period is about 30 days. uh, And then the, uh, the young will fledge after about a month from being hatched. And uh, prior to fledging, both the male and the female will take turns feeding the young. Mm-hmm. So definitely on this uh, Father's Day week oh, yeah. here yeah, 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 and uh, yeah. here in the United States, uh, it's Father's Day uh, around that time. Uh, we have a very the Muir falcon is a very good father, yeah. um, and of course a good mom. But yes, we, yes, we're you, we we, we you know we're rocks oh for these yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah <laughs> not cassowary dad level, but they're up there
1: right.
0: Yeah, or, they're definitely- you know I would even say the the, the ground hornbill or the great hornbill you know talk yes. about a super dad holy smokes you know yeah. they're up there with cassowaries now so yeah we'll we'll mm-hmm. add this one to the list
1: yeah and so all this is occurring in like may june july um when they are in the Amir region of northeastern china uh and then once again after all this occurs in the autumn that's when they will do their gnarly 8,000 kilometer migration to Southern Africa.
0: Well, yeah, now that they're, you know, ever since I think 2012, really they're in the last 10 years, there's been a big focus on this, this species. So I guess there's still a lot to learn about them.
1: There is. Yeah. Like I was trying to learn more about their courtship, behaviors and things like this and uh was hitting a lot of uh dead ends so but mm-hmm. hopefully as popularity gain and we're doing more of these tracking studies uh researchers can will be able to answer some of the general uh biology questions about them
0: yeah no they're just amazing i mean and as a bird their least concern uh, the work in nagaland has done a lot to preserve the species so they are no longer being poached in the tens of thousands, so which is which is really good. And then again, they, you know, we're learning so much about their migration routes, and now we're trying to figure out how they do this. So a lot of questions that are going to be answered, hopefully, in the next coming decade or two. And again, any of you young budding conservationists out there that are looking for careers, I, I'm telling you, I know I'm an elephant dork. I love the megafauna. It's where I studied for a couple decades. Look to birds, things like the Amur Falcon. They are just, they're, they're, they're crazy and fun to learn about.
1: Oh, yeah. Chris, you summed it up really well. And I think the biggest highlight of this podcast is the take home message that people care about these Amur Falcons and they want to save them. And it's a good, news story and it's of course it's one that still is developing right because uh we all we know birds in general are not out of the woods with climate change and pollution and uh and of course habitat destruction but it is just good to know that people are out there fighting for them and we want to celebrate that on this podcast and i just uh want to give a quick shout out to the um Nagaland Wildlife and Biodiversity Conservation Trust. Uh, you can find information about how the community and then India as a whole is trying to help protect these birds uh, by going to www.peoplenotpoaching.org, Friends of Amur Falcon. And then also uh, BirdLife International um, with the extension in India. So BirdLife India has been working in Nagaland since 2013 to promote community awareness about mirror um, falcons and how to conserve them and why we should care and things like this. And they can be found at www.b as in boy, And Chris will put those links up on our show notes. And of And of course, please, please check out Chris's interview uh, that will be dropping in a couple days to continue this inspirational story.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things I plugged a couple weeks ago, Angie, was participate in bird counts. And again, Cornell University, amazing school with their bird, their ornithology department has a bird count app or the Merlin ID app. And I used it a couple weeks ago. I was out in the woods here in New Zealand. Nice. I know I, yeah. And I know I asked you to go out and record during a walk, which I have. And I'm going to put together a little video for Instagram.
1: Well, and I'm so glad you did that because now I'm all into trying to identify which bird species I can hear. Yeah. I'm very lucky in Florida. I mean, I think on the video I sent you, there's probably about, I don't know, four or five, six different species in like a, 10 second clip. And so the boys and I are kind of getting involved it's summertime here. So we're out and about a lot more and spending a lot more time together. And yeah, that's one of our summer projects is trying to ID bird calls.
0: It, it is fun. It is fun. You know, again, good old Jesse's getting me into this. So the other day, so I asked you to record outdoors to, to record the sounds and a lot of birds, a lot of insects in Florida. I had Pip do it in the UK, tons of birds, just like it's a chorus. And then here I was about 30 minutes north of where I'm living and it's dead. Absolutely dead. I can't hear, I I could barely hear hear any birds, but I did use the Merlin ID app and I did find a silver eye, which uh, is a bird between Australia and New Zealand, but it, it, it just, it is fun. Use it with your kids. I use it, you know, going out there trying to identify some of these birds, you just pop it up and it, it has colors, location, and then you can mark where you were. So again, something just to use conservation tip. And again, like we know in North America, Angie, you know, we've lost 4 billion birds in 50 years. So it really helps scientists and researchers understand where these birds are, what's going on with climate change, things like that. So, so thanks for doing that. And thanks for participating.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm downloading the app right now as we speak.
0: Yeah, it's a fun one, and it's got bird calls in it. So, like that's what Jesse used when he was you know out at night trying to find kiwi, mm-hmm. and he's playing the the I think it was the big brown or one of the kiwi species. He's playing the male call, and then the one came right up to him and pecked him in the leg. <laughs> And then ran off. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, and he's like, it hurt. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you shouldn't have been teasing him. You know, you're teasing that right, poor bird. He, right, thought it was right. a, he thought it was a, another male. He was ready to fight and uh, it was just you. So he gave you a peck and ran off, declared himself a winner. <laughs> so, anyways, enjoy birds, people. Look up, look in the trees, listen, you know, listen, listen. to them. Yeah. yeah, because a lot of times you shut it out, but listen. And, they enhance our lives in so many ways. But thank you for listening. Share this episode. Say, hey, you want to learn about this bird and migration? Like, why do they do it? It's Get people excited about it. Excited yeah. about conservation. Excited about learning. But thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at com.